When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Silver and Black Flashback with your host, author of the Raiders Encyclopedia, Rich Schmelter. Thank you so much, Murph. You are the best, my friend. And so are you, Raider Nation, the best damn fan base in the world. Can I get a hell yeah for that? All right, it's time once again to jump into a silver and black time machine and travel back into the history of our beloved Raiders. A funeral director, a famous film director, a police van, and a pictorial in Playboy magazine. No, this is not the opening line of one of those jokes about people that walk into a bar and crazy things happen on the way to a humorous punchline. For these are the four topics for this episode of Silver and Black Flashback. Intrigued? Hell yeah, you are. Well, why keep up with the suspense? Let's get on with the show. The early days of the Raiders were bad, and I mean very bad. After a respectable 6-8 and finish during their first season, the Raiders won only a combined three games in 1961 and 1962, and in their first two seasons, they only averaged about 5,500 fans per home game while playing home games in San Francisco at Keysar Stadium in Candlestick Park. Even though fan support was low during the team's early stages of existence, those that did turn out to watch the team were completely dedicated to the Raiders. Ah, yes, the true foundation that present-day Raider Nation was built on. Being bad on the field, of course, did not help at the turnstiles. Despite the dedicated few that did show up, crowds were dismal for the new team, and most fans willing to pay for a ticket gravitated to the far more glamorous San Francisco 49ers of the established National Football League. With the exception of a few players, the team was talentless, losing money, and on the verge of bankruptcy. Principal owner Wayne Valley was spared after Buffalo Bills owner Ralph Wilson Jr. helped save the Raiders with a loan of $400,000. Valley then went after Oakland City officials to build him a stadium. He gave the city until Thanksgiving Day in 1961 to make a decision. If officials did not comply with his demands, he told them that the team would be gone after the 1961 season. Now, I would consider this a pretty bold move on Valley's part to threaten the city about moving a team that was bad and lacking fan support. That's like missing a lot of work complaining about the job when there, and not working all that hard, yet still demanding more money. Now that's a crazy thought, right? Not for Wayne Valley, because damn if his ploy didn't work. After two years of playing home games in San Francisco, the Raiders finally found a home in Oakland, though not a permanent one. While the Oakland Coliseum project was being worked on, the Raiders resided in a foster home of sorts from 1962 through 1965. The land used for the new stadium was originally built as housing by the federal government for war industry workers that came into the San Francisco area during World War II. On November 16, 1961, construction began on a 22,000-seat facility to house the Raiders. 
Some team members got together on November 30th to stage their own groundbreaking ceremony on a cloudy, rainy, dismal day, which seemed to be the perfect match for the Raiders' on-field success during this time. The name for this temporary home for the Raiders officially became Frank Ewell Field on November 22, 1961. 78-year-old Frank Ewell was a longtime councilman and one of the city's biggest supporters of Oakland Athletics. In addition to years working helping to improve the city's parks and recreation areas, along with involvement in the Oakland International Airport and the Oakland Alameda Coliseum Complex, Mr. Ewell also provided the city with another service. And now are you ready for this Raider Nation? Frank Ewell also owned Chapel of the Oaks Mortuary on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. Yep, the Raiders' first home field in Oakland was named after a funeral director, which seemed perfect due to their ghastly performance during their nine wins out of 33-game run in their first three seasons. Now, the stadium, if you want to call it that, was not impressive at all. It was a skeletal structure that resembled an erector set, and it seemed that if a strong wind came through, it might blow the whole thing over. The aluminum facility at times had no hot running water and was little more than a glorified high school stadium. Nevertheless, it was home for the Raiders until a permanent stadium was finished. Among the very small crowds at Frank Ewell Field during the Raiders' horrific first season there sat a portly, quirky, bald man in his early 60s with a British accent. It turned out to be none other than the round mound genius of suspense and horror films, the great director Alfred Hitchcock, who was, is, and always will be one of the most legendary film directors to work in the motion picture business. By 1962, Hitchcock was at the ultimate height of a lengthy career directing some of the best suspense-filled movies, and if anyone saw 1960's Psycho, he easily crossed over into the horror genre. During the Raiders' journey to posting one of the worst seasons in professional football history, Hitchcock was in the area filming his motion picture, The Birds, which became another classic added to his incredible resume. Now, awesome and weird is the fact that the master of suspense and horror supported a team whose performance was frightening while wearing black helmets and playing on a field named after a funeral director. You just can't make this stuff up, folks. Sometimes, Fact truly is stranger than fiction. And now, for the second story of this four-part episode, we are going to jump back two years before Frank Ewell Field was opened. After losing their first two games of the 1960 season, the Raiders came back strong, and by the end of October, they had won two out of their last three games, and a trip to New York City on October 28th gave the Raiders an opportunity to reach the 500 mark with a win. Not only did the Raiders achieve that goal, but this game provided the Raiders with possibly the best performance of their early existence. On a cold, rainy day at New York's famed polo grounds, the New York Titans, later to be named the Jets, had everything going their way throughout most of the game. Led by quarterback Al Darrow and receivers Don Maynard and Art Powell, New York had a 24-14 advantage. Leon Burton also helped pad New York's lead by returning a kickoff 101 yards. In the fourth quarter, Oakland's fortunes took a turn upward when cornerback Eddie Macon intercepted a pass at his own nine-yard line. Veteran quarterback Babe Pirelli took over the offensive controls and led the Raiders 92 yards downfield. Rookie James Jetstream Smith from Compton Junior College finished the drive off with a short yardage touchdown run. 
After Larry Barnes kicked the extra point, the Raiders trailed 24-21. A Bill Shockley field goal extended New York's lead to 27-21 with five minutes left to play. It was now up to the Pirelli-led Oakland offense to pull out a victory. The old pro decided to place the outcome of the game on his ground attack of Tony Teresa and Jetstream Smith. With Teresa sweeping to the outside and Smith pounding the ball between the tackles, the Raiders ate up 62 yards on eight plays. With the ball now resting at the New York 9, Smith got the call and barreled his way off left tackle across the soggy turf and landed into the end zone for the tying score. Larry Barnes then edited the conversion to send Oakland back to the West Coast with a well-earned 28-27 victory. This was truly an exciting game, but it also provided a colorful moment perfect for Raiders history. In the closing minutes, a young man, drunk out of his mind on beer, decided to run onto the field. The game was obviously stopped while the guy was chased and then tackled on the sideline by a policeman. And then came the fun part of this event. A police van was sent onto the soggy field to pick up the guy and haul him off to jail. It was then that the police van got stuck in the mud on the 20-yard line. Players from both teams were put to work trying to push the van out of the way while the crowd laughed hysterically. One more note on this game occurred prior to its start. Now, the Polo Grounds might have been one of the most cherished stadiums in America's sports history. So cherished, in fact, that even cockroaches and rats loved hanging out there. That's right, folks, cockroaches and rats. I mean, the place was filled with both of them, and after practicing the night before this game, the Raiders had to leave the lights on all night long and guard against the rats not getting into their equipment. Now, who said the world of professional football was not glamorous? And speaking of glamorous... It's time for us to round out this episode with the story of the Raiders' first ever link to Playboy magazine. Playboy was the brainchild of Hugh Hefner, who published his first edition of the magazine in December 1953 with nude photos he purchased of Marilyn Monroe, the greatest sex symbol in Hollywood history. Now, prior to becoming a Hollywood icon, Marilyn was a struggling starlet that posed for the photos in the late 1940s. By the time Playboy's first issue hit the stands, Marilyn was a huge star, and that status allowed Hefner and Playboy to soar to incredible heights in the publishing world. The magazine consisted of top-notch fiction, articles pertaining to all the current trends and styles, and pictorials of some of the world's most beautiful women posing in the nude. Now, many claim that they read Playboy for the articles. Sure they do. Hey, maybe, and more than likely, the articles do get read way after the pictorials were looked at first. By 1974, Hugh Hefner's Playboy Empire stood alone as the top men's magazine of the time, and it was considered an honor to be selected for women to pose in it. Just like in the world of professional football, Playboy magazine had scouts that were constantly on the lookout for women to pose in the magazine. One of those scouts spotted a 19-year-old blonde college student who was also a Raiderette, yes, one of football's fabulous females. Jane Lubbock had been a Raiderette for a few years when Playboy expressed an interest in her. She was in charge of one of the Raiderette pom-pom lines and logged in 40 straight games of performing at Raider home games by the time her days with the squad were over. At first, Jane did not believe the scout's credentials. But after a short time, she realized that the offer was legit when she was brought to Hugh Hefner's Chicago mansion as a guest. 
It was then on to the reason why Playboy expressed an interest in the 19-year-old. And the result was a five-page pictorial of her first modeling, a Raider uniform, and then two pages devoted solely to her totally in the nude inside a locker room. Jane's appearance came in the September 1974 issue of Playboy, making her the first Raiderette to pose nude for a magazine. It was then back to college for the gorgeous California blonde, but not before earning her rightful place in Raiders lore. And there you have it, another end to our time together. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now, before ending this episode, I want to give a shout out to two honorary Raider fans, Matt Victor and Bruce Hallis, both of whom support this show and are always there to encourage me. I am proud to call you both my friends. And now, to the rest of the greatest fan base in the world, I proudly say, as always, until we get together once again, love you, Raider Nation! This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.